I don't believe this. I mean, you thought? You actually thought there was something going on between me and Fred? <laughs> I can't even dignify that with a response. You like him better than me, don't you? <laughs> I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And Amy, I would like you to tell me, and only me, nobody else, what the trope <laughs> is we are about to discuss. I'm sorry, I can't tell you. I have something to do at work with my really sexy new coworker. Today, we are tempted by a sexy coworker. We're watching Growing Pains, Season 1, Episode 3, Jealousy, Rock, Season 1, Episode 20, A Piece of the Rock, The Simpsons, Season 5, Episode 9, The Last Temptation of Homer, and Till Death. Season 1, Episode 14, The Colleague. Yeah, tempted by a sexy co-worker. This turned out to be a great trope, I think. This yeah. lineup, in my opinion, is exactly what we're looking for with this podcast. You've got these four shows that are really going to overlap heavily with the stories. You've got sort of the same thing happening in each one of these shows, and yet a very different take and a whole different attitude from show to show. But from show to show. And the other thing is that this is in season one of almost all of our shows, yes. three out of the four. So it's a one of the things that you like to say it's true to real life is something that actually happens so every you know every couple kind of navigates this in their own different way and it's something that the writers rooms are kind of tackling early on because it isn't ridiculous over the top or you know tropey tropey no exactly and it's going to allow you to get to know the characters and their relationship and yes i noticed that too that for once we're not dealing with season 12 episode 17 or whatever these are early on and even the simpsons which is season five you have to grade on a curve because the Simpsons are in like season 125 or whatever. So this <laughs> is still relatively early going for them. But so speaking of the trope being taken from real life, this is something that you and I don't really have to deal with because one of us works from home and the other one despises her her fellow employees of the opposite sex. Uh, so I'll just ask you. I don't uh, know if that's true. That's kind of the impression I've got over the years. Uh, I am a man hater. <laughs> Is this something, do you have any, you know, experiences you'd like to share where you had some proximity to this phenomenon, where is there some new person in a workplace that kind of stirred up a lot of passions, or were you ever suspicious that somebody you were seeing was, you know, was getting too chummy with somebody at work, anything like that? I don't I don't know that I was ever suspicious of anybody I was seeing being too chummy with people at work. Um, I definitely have been accused of cavorting with a coworker even yeah. when it's um when it's not true there was a there was a PE teacher at my first job that 
I was married then. I guess like the kids started noticing that we were flirting hmm. and they were they would tease me. My fifth graders would tease me and they would call me Mrs. whatever his last name was instead of my last name. And that I like shut that down immediately. And I was like, no, 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 no. Because teachers are horrible gossips and like that, guy, you know, that would get around immediately. And then a couple years later, one of my one of my teacher friends, I wasn't at that school anymore, but one of my teacher friends from that school was like, so so and so said they saw you out at the bar with Brian and you guys were kissing and I was like no was definitely was false. like fully false in fact the time I did go to the bar and talk to that coach that guy Brian he was talking to me about and like crying on my shoulder because the girl who the teacher friend I was telling you about he had a crush on her and she wasn't interested in him so he's like crying to me and I'm getting accused yeah this was not something I ever really dealt with because for all of the years that I was working at offices and studios and stuff with people, I was single. So I was all too You're ready like, for some, let yeah, me be tempted some by a young sexy intern to strut in and, and take an interest with me. I will say I have seen this scenario play out with close friends of mine multiple times where pretty much just like it is on TV, you have somebody who, you know, somebody pops up at work who is a little bit younger and the relationship just obviously doesn't have any of that baggage that your years long marriage does. And they sort of zig where your wife zags, you know, they're just sort of the opposite in every way. And yeah, people do tend to go through these sort of crises of like, right. yeah, I kind of know what I have to do, but boy, it does make me stop and think. So yeah, I've seen the angst that this causes. Knock on wood, we haven't had any interlopers. Uh, we haven't had any <laughs> Tisha Campbells come and try to tear us asunder so far. Yeah, nobody, no, none of these um, cool like marketing girls or what are they, the project managers on oh, your God. Zoom calls? <laughs> their type A personalities haven't uh, yeah, no, so far, taken you away from me yet. <laughs> so far, they're fine to, to leave me be. Alright, so let's start with Growing Pains. This is a show we talked about before in our Dream episode, but like we said, now we're going back to the early days. This is the third ever episode of Growing Pains, and there's a lot to take in just from the get-go here. We get, first of all, I remarked when we were watching Bosom Buddies how I appreciated the little narration at the beginning that just gives you this very straightforward, hi everybody, here's the premise of our show. Growing Pains <laughs> does the same exact thing. It begins with the two of them telling you, the audience, what the premise of the show is. Right. And I didn't realize that Growing Pains basically began as sort of a Mr. Mom right. knockoff. Yeah, there was like this, the twist on the family sitcom is, okay, the mom's going back to work and the dad is still working, but he's moved his psychiatry practice into the home. So he he's now doing the cooking and all. And this little voiceover of the premise of the show only lasted for episodes one, two, and three. And this is episode three. So we're, this is the last time it actually aired. Yeah, well, that makes sense because that premise of the show is going to be very important to the goings on of this. So exactly. I guess besides the fact that they just assume after the first few episodes, you've you've got it. Uh, I could see why they would want to reiterate that. And so, yeah, this show starts with the family in the kitchen. You've got the, the two kids. 
well, there's three kids. We have the two older ones, Mike and Carol. They have the same exact haircut at this point And their faces, like they have the same noses. I was like, wow, they really do look like brother and sister, although she wasn't originally cast. In the unaired pilot, it was somebody else, and then that girl didn't test well with the test audiences, so they replaced her with um, Tracy Gold. Yeah, Tracy Gold at this point. I'm getting a little bit of Louise from Herman's Head vibes Mm -hmm. because of the short short hair. But also with these glasses, I thought she was really reminding me of the small Smart Chipette, the one with the glasses. Oh, I don't from know the Alvin and the Chipmunks? Yeah, I don't yes. know if that's Brittany or I think Eleanor is the chubby one. I forget which one she is, but I was really getting that vibe with her big glasses and her kind of chubby cheeks. But yeah, she looks very cute, but it is funny how she has a completely different look, literally same haircut as Kirk Cameron, her brother. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the whole family is downstairs and sorry to rag on all the styles, but... But the mom, Maggie, walks in with shoulder pads in the style of Frankenstein's monster. She they are enormous. So cool. Like she's dressed so cool for that time period. She's got like the oversized blazer with no buttons and the that has shoulder pads, and then the oversized shirt underneath that also has shoulder yes. pads. So it's shoulder pads on shoulder pads, and then she's wearing this like off-center kind of side swoopy X yes. shaped belt. Just when you say oversize, it's like if you've ever seen Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads concert documentary where David <laughs> nope. Byrne wears this crazy, like gigantic tuxedo that makes him into like a big puppet or something. It really <laughs> is wild. But no, yeah, she's got the double shoulder pad thing going on for sure. But I really was digging her belts. Like the look, I mean, when she would put the blazer over it, I was like, all right, that's too much shoulder pad. But when she just had the regular like oversized shirt and belt on, I thought she looked good. The, yeah, my final comparison is going to be the guy in the office in Beetlejuice who's like hanging like a clothesline <laughs> and gets like strung through the office. The way it's just like this totally flat like bar of a... Across her shoulders. Yeah. Okay, moving on from the shoulders... Yeah, she comes into the room because, you know, she's, she's, I don't think it's her first day or anything, but she's early goings in this job she has as a reporter. Like you said, Jason, the dad, is in this Mr. Mom scenario, and we immediately start getting the cringy vibes that are like Ross from the last Will They Won't They episode. He's all up in her face. He's asking, you know, can, can I uh, come have lunch with you at work, right? right? This is my nightmare. Already, I'm like, you know, she He's telling him, like, gee, I don't know. It's kind of busy. I'm reporting on a toxic waste story because it's the 80s. So, of course, her assignment is toxic waste expose. And, yeah, he's just like... He's Aaron Brockovich. (laughs) Yeah. And he's just not taking no for an answer with this, like, I cannot go a full eight hours without being in your presence. We need to have lunch together. And even Kirk Cameron, the son, kind of has to, like, intervene and be like, like, Dad, get some chill. Yeah. Well, he tells her, he's like, Mom, this is getting hard to watch. Like, come on, you got to let the guy take you to lunch. But, yeah, you immediately get that dynamic of, like, he's needy. 
Oh, see, and that's interesting because I didn't pick up on the the cringe or that the kind of controlling nature that I feel like Ross was giving when it when we were ha- having that conversation about him and Rachel in the last will they won't they. This to me was like she's trying to get out the door. Everybody's trying to get out the door except for Jason, the dad, and he is like, "Hey, you know, I'll see you at lunch" because they had had plans that she would come home for lunch, uh-huh. and she was like, "Oh." I totally forgot. I'm so sorry. And then he's like, well, uh, maybe I should come take you out. And she's like, yeah, I don't know because it's busy. And that's when Mike intervenes and he's like, I'll just come to you. You know, and she's like, yeah, yeah, that's OK. So at, because it was like at first she forgot that they had plans. I felt like there was a little bit more of a balance. But yes, as the episode goes on, it's really interesting to watch Alan Thicke's character, Jason, kind of devolve into this, like, you're never here, I'm so needy, I'm always by myself, even though the kids are sitting, like, all of that coming out of him, all that insecurity sort of jumping to the forefront. Yeah, so he does show up at her work, and... Uh, Fred Mathis, right? Yes. That is her coworker. This guy is a tall drink of water. I just love the, the 1980s version of like, let's see, you, you know, you're Alan Thicke. You, so you're what's in- hot compared to you? Yeah. Somebody really tall, except for he's not even that really tall. So we've got to put Alan Thicke in a chair that swallows him. So he, it makes him look him even taller. This guy is tall. He's got the vibe of like maybe a white basketball player or football player or something. But he yeah, has, he, he does give athlete vibes, but he's older. So he's, yeah. yeah. Well, because again, that's that's we're playing right into the stereotypes, right? If there's a woman who's a threatening, you know, outside force she's always going to be a little younger i feel like with the man he's going to be a little older and just what i mean by the 80s aesthetic of it all he's got so this is just from the male perspective then because like i don't know that the man who would tempt you know tempt me would be necessarily older well i'm not saying it applies universally but i do feel like it look maybe it is just a trope that doesn't bear out but i feel like that is a very common stereotype is that women tend to like those older more sophisticated yeah, men when, when and, we're young not when we're not when we're grown maybe. with children uh but but regardless He's got the Clark Gable mustache, right? Yes, he does. And he's got that rat face that nobody's going to get this reference, but there's this actor, Warren William, from the 40s, not even the 40s, like the 20s and 30s, who's in one of my favorite movies ever, Skyscraper Souls, who is exactly this role. He's supposed to be like the old, powerful millionaire that's going to, you know, that's going to seduce your young girlfriend. And yeah, there was a time when this was considered the hot guy and i don't know when that time that's the thing is (laughs) even by the 80s i feel like it's already a little passe but i'm telling you the casting of this guy having just watched gone with the wind a few weeks ago you see the the leftover vestiges of that version of a handsome man that old timey strapping dude with this little mustache yeah for sure i mean he gives like a little bit older kind of like burt reynolds tom selleck 
angelic-y thing. Like yes, that's, it's yes. the mustache is Man's a big part man. of it. Yeah, but he does. He's got that like, um, what's the the world's most interesting man or something oh, like sure, that. Oh, sure, the dosek he's got. Yeah. Yes. And what's really going to make Jason on edge is he calls Maggie Mags. That's right. And I could see this and being a thing. And he says it, okay, this is annoying though, because he says the word Mags 15 times in his five lines. He's like, Mags and I do Mags and Mags and Mags this and Mags this and Mags, do you want to this? And hey, I think Mags and I are going to this and Mags this. And, Ma-, and I'm like, if, you have two Mags in every sentence. You need to stop. Yeah. And it is, I mean, I guess it's fine. Like we would have nicknames for each other and stuff like that in, in places where I worked, but it does seem, yeah, a little passive aggressive the way he's like, just so you know, I call your wife Mags all the time. <laughs> and like, you're Twice not going to forget Twice in every sentence, that. just yeah. so you know. What sort of happens is their lunch date gets sort of imposed on because, you know, Fred, this, this dude is like, oh, have fun at lunch. Oh, darn. We have that meeting meeting at two. I need to talk to you before then. It's already 1.30. And so Jason graciously invites the guy to join them. And we don't even get to see the lunch date. We just sort of see the beginnings of it that as they're walking out, you know, Fred is like, oh gosh, I couldn't. Well, if you insist. And then sort of immediately is like, hey, Mags, let's talk about that thing. And they just kind of like shoulder Jason out of the, the whole dynamic. Right. He is not getting to have a lunch with his wife. He's getting to sit there while she has a work lunch. And then immediately goes back to work and spends all, like, is giving all of her attention to this other guy, not like any type of romantic attention, literally just work attention, but it's enough that Jason doesn't know how to handle it. Yeah. And then we just sort of cut back to the home, right? Right. And it's like later that night. Yes. Because Jason does the thing of answering a landline with somebody's name, right? This is something they would always do in the movies that I thought was so strange, where when they're eager for a call, call. yes, your landline rings and you go, Maggie, Maggie, is that you? Where even if it was the person you were expecting, they would be like, Jesus, why did you answer the phone like that? I just always thought that was one of those bizarre like TV tropes. Oh, that's interesting. I kind of always just took it as like, uh, you know, they were expecting the call and so they knew it was you or whatever. But that's what he does. And it's not Maggie. Who is it? It's Fred. (laughs) Because Maggie's on her way home and Fred was assuming she was already there and was like, hey, is Mags there yet? And Jason's like, no, Mags isn't here yet, but I'll tell her. And, um, you know, so he leaves a message for her. And so then Maggie gets there, you know, as he's hanging up the phone and Jason's like, great. All right. And sits down, they sit down on the couch. How was your day? And she's like, you know, it's just been such a long day. I don't even want to talk about it because I just want to leave it all behind and think about other things. And he's like, okay. And so then they go to like start having a conversation and Mike yells from the other side of the room. Hey, dad, don't forget to give mom her message. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Fred called and can't even get out the message before she like jumps over him to get to the phone and is like, oh my God, I've got to tell him about whatever, 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 in the way that she didn't want to talk to Jason. Now she's going to get on the phone and debrief the day with Fred. Yeah. 
And this is where, like I said, I saw these vibes from the get-go in the kitchen scene. But now Jason is in full insufferable mode. Oh, yeah. Uh, And even before that, he was snapping at the kids. Like, I don't know when your mother's going to be home. Yeah. And so he's doing the thing of, you know, well, uh, what time are you going to be home? I don't know, 10, 10, 15. Well, which is it? 10 or 10, 15? Oh, yeah. This is the next morning. We get the next iteration of him trying to cook breakfast. Yes. That's this, like, we get three examples of that like throughout the three different days that we're watching the breakfast scene is great we get some really good sitcom sort of uh physical comedy here where they're having this confrontation and it's it's all sort of coming out that you know jason is not crazy about all this time she's spending with fred and blah 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 and he's getting more and more tense and you see him going through the kitchen like putting the salt and pepper in the refrigerator and then throwing the frying pan into the dart into the garbage and then squirting the detergent like a full bottle of detergent into the sink just like sort of absentmindedly doing all these weird things with the kitchen props right and he's his whole thing is i'm a psychologist i know when people are you know denying their feelings i know what feelings i'm feeling and the feeling i'm feeling is not jealousy the feeling i'm feeling is loneliness because my wife isn't here and i did it and he's just like trying to find every little thing that he can that would show that it's not about Fred and it's not about jealousy. It's about Maggie ignoring him or Maggie doing this or all these other things that have nothing to do with jealousy, right? And Maggie's so cute because she just is like sitting back understanding how he's feeling and you know he and she's like I think it might be this and he's like absolutely not so you know if he's not going to address the problem head on she has nothing to say she's like I love you very much I'm not ignoring you I'm sorry work is going late I'm not sure when I'm going to be home sometime he was like well just give me an estimate and she's like sometime between 9 and 11 and he's like that's not an estimate an estimate is 1006 1007 1005 like whatever and she's like uh, 10 to 10, 15. And he's like, well, which one? You know, he's just so, he's he's in such a tizzy. Yeah, there's a fun little joke that's a little blue by growing pain standards where he goes, well, you know, a lot can happen in 15 minutes. Oh, the, yeah. The Titanic sank in 15 minutes. He has a couple other examples. He goes, our last child was conceived in 15 minutes. At most. Yeah, (laughs) which is great. (laughs) But uh, yeah, she goes back to work and we get another scene of the rest of the family waiting for her. And Jason is getting more and more tense. And there's a part where Mike goes, uh, hey, dad, when's mom coming home? And he goes, do I look like Gene Dixon, Mike? Which I don't know who the hell Gene Dixon is. That is a dated reference. Some (laughs) kind of news guy, I guess. No, she was like a like a psychic. Okay, fair enough. But that that delivery was hilarious to me. And then, yeah, Jason is like, that, I'm, j- I'm just going to go get her, you know, because there's a point where he goes like, S- someone needs to look out for her safety. She's all alone. And then the daughter goes, well, she's not alone, Dad. She's with Fred. And he's right, like... Right, except for I think she says Frank, but I am like, maybe I misheard it, but I was like, did she just say Frank? That's funny. I don't remember. I was too distracted by how hot Alan Thicke looks when he puts... Puts on his Letterman's jacket. <laughs> he really uh, does. I was like, whoa, why is, yes. first of all, why is a grown man wearing a Letterman's jacket? This seems to be something the high school kid would wear. I've never seen it before, but now I think I like this look. The whole time he's been wearing this work shirt, like just a button up shirt with a 
little checker pattern and these brown pants, like they're either corduroys or just like normal slacks. And he just looks like kind of your normal down the middle dad. You add this letterman's jacket and it's a really good look. It is. It's one of these letterman jackets that doesn't have a letter. It's, it's the JV. Yeah, right. It's the blank well, jacket. Yeah. So he goes in his letterman's jacket to, to the news office. And there's a funny scene where it's, it's Maggie and Fred. They're working after hours and they've got like the shades down in their office and they see Jason. They see this like shadowy figure lurking outside yeah, of their like office. It's like frosted glass. Yeah. I don't even know if it's the shades. I think it, or, it's has, it's an office that instead of having just glass, it has frosted glass. Yeah. I thought it was like a cheap thing that you pulled down or something. Well, because if that was the case, wouldn't they have just done the gag of like lifting it up and seeing him there? But instead they like went over yeah. to the door. Well, this was what was so funny. There was a line they dropped earlier where Fred says to Maggie, you know, a couple of goons tried to intimidate me when I when I did that's the right. story at that at that toxic waste dump. And so, so they think that's what yeah, this is. And Fred actually grabs a three hole puncher yes. and like poises himself at the door like he's about to clobber Alan Thick or whoever or, this yeah. goon is that's coming in. And Maggie grabs a stapler, yes. opens it up and goes like Yeah, and I laughed out loud when they kick the door open and you just hear Jason off camera just kind of go like, oh, yeah, the door hits him in the face. Yeah. And he was like, good thing my nose stopped the door before it hit my face as it comes in. He comes in. They're like, obviously, what are you doing here? And it's great. He's trying to justify. He's like, I don't know, Maggie, maybe a little someone called Ben, our son. You know, we haven't mentioned that there's been this B plot where Ben, who's an adorable little child in this first season, he's just trying to come up with a a project for his science class. Right. So so third grade science project. He has to come up with one and everybody's been giving him ideas and none of them are really the idea he wants. And he's like, mom, will has the best ideas so jason's like that's it he won't do mold he won't do whatever well this is what he said he goes it's ben he's got a bad attitude about mold and it's just not ethical for him to do tadpoles again that's right (laughs) great (laughs) line he had done tadpoles for his second grade science project yeah and so you know Fred excuses himself and is like, all right, this sounds like a personal thing that you guys have to work out. And then Maggie just basically flummoxes Jason with the very real, obvious, logical truth of it all. Like she points out this past instance where he had a friendship with a female coworker, and you know all the little examples that yeah, she they mentions. were writing a paper together. They went on work trips together, and the paper that they were writing is something like the benefits sexuality. of human sexuality. Yeah, it's There's like a the point- way to keep the spice alive, or yeah. something of human sexuality, right? Which is funny this will tie into the simpsons and maybe some of our other examples when there are these funny little side references to the things that the people are working on or watching or whatever are always like are you considering cheating on your wife or something (laughs) so yeah they had worked on a project about sexuality and maggie was like and didn't you think it was weird that she always rode up front with you in the car? And he's like, well, she had those long legs. She's like, you know? that doesn't make it any better. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, 
little by little starting to dawn on Jason that, oh, this could have been a stimulus for her to feel jealousy. And he goes like, oh, but Maggie, I mean, that would be silly. That was a professional relationship. And she's like, no, duh. What do you think this is? Exactly. And the other point that she made, and it was well made, was that it's like Jason, she says, after she gets him to finally realize that he is jealous, she says, hey, it's hard to be home alone while the other person is out and about and interacting with people and your only interaction all day long are the kids. It's hard and it's going to take some adjusting. And But, you know, I've done it for a long time and I understand what you're going through. We should talk about it rather than you being like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm not jealous and projecting all of this crazy nonsense onto everything else. Yeah. The only thing that's weird about that is he has a job like he's doing his psychotherapy from home and they're playing it as though it is a full Mr. Mom where it's like right, he has totally no stimulation working, yeah. and yeah, nothing to do. But yes, that point is well taken. And yeah, it is a very sitcom resolution the way this guy who is as he has pointed out to himself, a trained psychiatrist and a master of human thought is just so completely lacking in self-awareness, a la Larry from Perfect Strangers or any number of other sitcom characters until this one truth bomb sort of gets him to go, oh yeah, and like in one moment sort of realize the silliness of how he's behaving. And that is his word. He goes, I suddenly feel very silly. And Maggie goes, well... Silly is a strong word, to which I say, no, it's not. There are much stronger words than silly for uh, the way that this dude has been acting. Yeah, I mean, they it is handled in, in such a way where it's very caring. Like, they're yes. not, there's no uh, accusations, really, of one another. Like, Maggie is very, like, she gets it. She gets it. She got it days before he got it, you know? And she's yeah. just waiting for him to figure it out and is really with no resentment at all, understanding of what he's going through. You know, whereas if you were in a bad relationship, she would have been like, oh, yeah, well, how do you think I felt? And then, you know, I went through this for years. So if I can go through it, you can go through it. It doesn't have any of that, like, I, you know, you racked up tallies right. and now I'm racking up tallies. It's they're in a healthy relationship and they're like, hey, I see you're going through that. I've been there. It's going to be OK. I promise. Like, we'll get through it together. So it's a much more positive um, resolution. Yeah, definitely. And on that same note, the characterization of Jason's jealousy is cute and it is silly and gentle yeah right. and even when he gets angry it's it's funny you know yeah. he just he's another he's another sitcom actor that has that touch like we talk about with John Ritter or Michael J Fox where there's just a gentleness to him that it just takes the edges off of these potentially cringy you know storylines sure all right let's move on to rock Season one, episode 20, A Piece of the Rock. Yes, now Rock was one I've been looking forward to covering ever since we started the podcast. I remembered this show, you know, because... I don't know. I just, I remember watching it. I remember this being sort of Fox's attempt to make a more serious sitcom. You know, like you always right. talked about how you weren't allowed to watch Fox because of Married with Children and The Simpsons and all that. I think this was them going, hey, hey, you families that don't let your kids watch Fox. 
what about this? What about a nice down-to-earth show about a working family? I think they were very much trying to capture the vibe of a Norman Lear show. Yeah, starring all of these people that are direct from Broadway, very like highly trained actors. Yes. Which, to my incredulity, after watching this episode, the main character, Rock, is one. He is one of these actors that doesn't look people in the eye. And that drives me crazy. He looks and you can see his eyeline in every single scene. He's looking at someone's cheek. He's looking at their mouth. He's looking at their shoulder. He's never looking them in the eyes. And it drives me nuts. And to me, it's the marker of a bad actor. And then I find out this guy went to Yale drama and was yeah. nominated for a Tony. And I'm like, how is this even possible? I, it drove me nuts the whole show. It, like I had to keep telling myself not to look at that so I could actually watch the show and not be so distracted by this thing that is a pet peeve of mine in acting. That's funny. I didn't notice the eyeline thing, but I definitely knew this about him. Uh, Rock is based on his real life. He was known as Rock because of his rock-throwing battles that this guy got into. Wait, apparently. what? I thought it was because he was, like, kind of a big dude. He It says on Wikipedia that it, they called him Rockhead or something like that, and keep then reading. it got shortened to Rock. Keep, keep going. Reading, no, no, but keep reading me. the rest of that sentence. There uh, it is. Nickname Rock came from being involved in rock-throwing fights when he was a kid. Yeah. He was originally nicknamed Rockhead. <laughs> exactly. So Rock is short for Rockhead, which he earned <laughs> in his rock throwing battles. But uh, yeah, look, in all seriousness, this guy has done some living, right? He went to prison for manslaughter. Uh, he had all kinds of, you know, troubles with the law in his younger days. And then, as you said, went on to be this very successful theater actor. Yeah, he started a, like a drama club while he was in prison because he got his sentence extended because he assaulted a corrections officer. Yeah. And then ended up having dropped out of school in like seventh grade. He finished high school and his AA while in prison and then came out and finished his undergrad at a school in Maryland and went to Yale Drama. I was like, what? What a life. Yeah. So this guy has had this crazy life. And because of this show, he had a moment in the movies and stuff. He's in Alien 3 mm -hmm. and a handful of other movies in the 90s. Well, and prior to this show, he was one of this um, kind of crew of actors that did August Wilson plays. Yes. Yeah. Now, what I will say in terms of his acting style, I didn't notice the eyeline thing. What I did notice immediately when he walks on the set is, yeah, this is a theater actor because he is screaming. And <laughs> now, granted, his character is supposed to be excited. You know, we might as well start getting into the story. He's excited that he's been named the official mentor of his uh, his garbage sanitation Right, you he's know, a location. garbage man, and he is going to be the new trainer person for the new mentee. Right. And he walks into this locker room just belting it to the back of the Coliseum, you know, like he just has that style. He's and play into the full house for sure. Yeah. He, and so at this point in the run, the episode that aired two before this was a live episode. Yes, I remember these happening. And then 
after that, because I guess it did so well, and almost everybody in the main cast is from Broadway, yeah. they the entire season two was filmed live yeah. and broadcast live in the Eastern and Central time zones, and then the others got to see the one hour later. Yeah, no, I absolutely remember this gimmick or hook or whatever you want to call it. And again, a nod to, you know, the television of yesteryear. Now, what I'll say now watching it in 2024 is yeah this was fox's attempt at a more sort of prestigious you know high-minded show i don't know that it totally gets there you know and because in part of the live recording and everything you can see it's it's clearly shot on video so just the look of it and and the norman lear shows were maybe two but it it doesn't look as nice as some of the other shows we talk about and the sense of humor even though it has this very sort of of the people working class setting and everything and it's not going to have the toxicity of a married with children or that kind of show this is still you still have the audience hooting and hollering every time yeah you know, it's still somebody, filmed on a fox set so like people yeah, want to get involved yeah there's just there's still that sort of ribald energy to it you know when when rock makes a statement like no of course i won't let the lady garbage collector drive everyone's gonna like give that a standing ovation yeah. like there's still those elements of like yeah this this hasn't quite reached the level of like a proper you know prestige tv show i think well i mean prestige in the way that it is uh, you know they've got this amazing broadway cast and they're trying you know they're bringing all of their acting talents to bear but yet we're still on fox in the early 90s so we're still going to tell these jokes about how women can't drive and how you know it's all about sex and whatever they're they're trying to be down to earth it's like yeah it's like spock like a child of two worlds you know it's got kind of one foot in each in each swimming pool but yeah this is going to revolve around tisha campbell who, of course, we know from Martin and House Party and many things, she is going to be the tempter in this scenario. She's the new uh, sanitation worker that Rock is going to be in charge of training. That's right. Her name is Angela, and she is super into Rock. So after their first day on the job, you know, he's like, oh, I'm going to have to do all the heavy lifting for her. I'm going to be the one doing the driving. I'm going to have to do all of it. And then they come back into kind of like their locker room where they take off their um, coveralls and, you know, get back changed into their regular street clothes or whatever. They come back in after a day of picking up the the garbage and he's just like, man, we did that route faster than anybody else. You're such a great lifter. She's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I work out and I'm, I'm a, you know, champion weightlifter or whatever. So I'm really good at that. And they just had a great day and he was so excited and he's saying, man, you really, you know, you learn so fast, you pick up things so well, I'm so proud of you. And she's like, it starts taking off her coveralls and is immediately coming on to him. Yeah, this is, I would argue, kind of the weakest of the four stories in terms of the way that this Angela character is portrayed. Like, she's kind of a sociopath, you know? Like, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, 
to have the experience of someone's throwing themselves at me. They're, they're just, they're really attracted and they're really forward, but she is just like kind of over the top to the point where, you know, for me anyway, I kind of stop buying into the story. Well, so I thought they were purposefully doing a subversion. I thought they were doing the way the men, like when a man is sexually harassing a coworker, the way he won't take no for an answer and and that trope, I thought they were flipping that on its head and making her the aggressor in the same way we oftentimes see like an older white man yeah. being an aggressor. And so then we had this moment throughout the episode, all these moments where, where Rock is trying to, I keep wanting to call him the Rock, <laughs> where Rock is trying to explain to his friends and his family and his coworkers that this is happening and no one is believing him yeah. in the same way that happens a lot of times to women. Like, oh, it's all in your head. And, you know, except for it's flipped because he's a man. So they're like, it's all in your head and she would never go for well, you. Well, it's so not they're just that he's making a man. fun of him as well, like, because he's older than her too. Yeah, he's an old fat guy. like, And he's... she's super hot. Yes. But I just want to be clear, this harassment that we're talking about, you know, what actually happens is she comes on to him and he says, no, I'm happily married. And she says, so what? Who cares? And he keeps saying no. And then she grabs his butt and then she goes, sleep on it. And he goes, I'm not sleeping on nothing. You know, so I just, if you haven't watched the episode, I just want to be clear when I say that it's characterized a little bit over the top, that's what I'm talking about. That she is like really, you know, there is no nuance or shades of gray to her character. It is, it is like I am a force of nature. Yeah, like I said, that's why I thought they were trying to do this subversion where she was that character was written as though it was a male yeah. aggressor in like pursuing the woman who it doesn't matter how many times you say no that you, like no one's listening to you and yeah. you're supposed to say no so you just go and sleep on it because i know you want me no matter what well and yeah the gaslighting sort of happens because when when they're in the bar and rock is with his dad and his brother is, and one of his friends and he's explaining all this first of all there is this very 90s uh, sensibility to the way he he says it's sexual harassment and he says and it in this hushed tone everyone laughs like yes. that's that was so dated to me right where this yeah. man says it's sexual harassment and the audience and everyone like the whole cast just cracks up like exactly. it's ridiculous that a man could ever be sexually harassed yeah. and i was like yeah okay i see what you're doing rock all right all right yes so yes they're turning the tables in this very sort of 90s way and then he calls over Tisha Campbell's character and she Michigan J frogs him, right? <laughs> she will not let her attraction to him be seen or heard by anyone else. No, that's right. And then everybody laughs at him and she goes off to the bathroom and they all leave. And then she comes back out and like gooses him again and kisses him. And she's like, I just don't want you to get caught, baby. Yeah. So he goes back to his wife. And uh, again, I just want to emphasize that thing that she said about like, I'm just playing it cool so that nobody knows. Like, I'm doing you a favor yeah. so that this is just between you and me. 
I think there's a way to play all of that that is more true to life, where this could absolutely happen. And yeah, someone would be like, oh, God, gee, she's, she's got a point there. But because she's played arch-villain style, and I think you're right, this is very much supposed to be a gender flip. It's still, at this point, it is like she is the Joker from Batman. Like, yeah, she just seems she like a is villain. A, yeah, she is a villain, know? for and sure. And so it is just like... There's there's no real like getting into the head of Rock and oh gee what would I do if I were him? It's like no he's just got this dilemma he has to solve. Yes, and it is a very clear dilemma. He's like I can't get out of this. And then at the same time we do see a little bit of like the oh my gosh you know I mean the episode's called a piece of the rock you know or a piece of rock or whatever. Yeah. And she does she wants a piece and he recognizes that. But what he doesn't do is what we saw. Um, George Jefferson and Bob Newhart do, which is, oh, look at that. Everybody kind of likes me. Hey, yeah. look at look at me. I'm going to I'm going to take that as a stroke to my ego. Uh, but also, you know, no, yeah. not really. But no, he doesn't do that at all. He's like, this does not stroke my ego. I don't like this. I don't want this. I don't want this dilemma. I don't want to be a part of this. I'm, I, I've, I've got to tell everyone and anyone so that they can help me get out of it. And nobody believes me. So the only person I have left to tell is my wife. Yeah. And in that way it does feel like sort of sitcom 1.0 to me the way they're not exploring just like you said the ideas of like you know what is it like even though you know it's wrong and you don't want to act on it what is it like when you find out that this other person is attracted to you they're just not getting into any of that it does come across like Mork showing up to challenge Fonzie you know it's just like this external character coming in and trying to shake our lives up and we have to vanquish her yeah I well and I mean I get what you're saying about how she is played as arch villain but I don't think we lose any of that nuance in Rock's performance in terms of like his struggling with that and not necessarily struggling with the um, the ego of isn't it nice to be wanted and maybe I will or you know won't consider this or whatever. No, I really enjoy that I get to see this man kind of play this desperate version of something that we see women play all the time that yeah. like no one is believing me. I cannot like I cannot get anyone to listen to me and I am desperate because the like the minute something goes sideways on this, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to be the one that gets in trouble here. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing that I feel like they also don't explore that much. Like he might get in trouble with his wife or something, but they don't necessarily explore and maybe to their benefit the the ins and outs of like, oh, well, you know, is the presumption going to be against him because he's the man or something like they don't really get into any of those. No, because his boss, if they thing. found out that he and her were hooking up, everyone would be giving him high fives. Yeah. Yeah. We get back at the beginning, his boss saying, oh, there's been pressure on us to hire a woman. And then he goes, yeah, maybe my wife will finally leave me alone. What a battle axe. Maybe now I can get some. And that was in like yeah. minute two <laughs> of the episode. I was say minute 30 seconds yeah. of the episode. I was like, all right, this isn't going to be the most enlightened show. But yeah, Rock turns to his wife, Eleanor. Now he's like, you're the only person who will believe me. He sort of implies like, you're the, you're the only person who will believe this because you're the only other person that's attracted to me. Yeah, you, you get it. You want a piece of me. You understand, <laughs> you'll understand why she wants me so bad. And of course, you know, she kind of laughs at that and is like, all right, honey. And, and she does, she does believe him. And she's like, hey, though, you know, um, you're going to need to handle this yourself. Yeah. And so he goes back to work 
work. And it's funny, they don't pursue this, but at first he's talking to his friend, the guy who happens to play the security guard in the office, and he's telling him about all this that's been happening. His friend doesn't believe him. And he goes, okay, here, here's Angela. She's coming this way. Go hide behind that locker and listen to me talk to her. And then you'll hear. And I wrote down, oh, this is like some Shakespeare stuff. This is some like, <laughs> go hideth behind that tree. Go hide behind the curtain. That's how yeah. you get stabbed. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, but they play this out for like 10 seconds. And yeah, then the guy's like, like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Speak up, Rock. Yeah. And so look, basically Rock confronts her and he's like, this has to stop he says, like, I don't know what to do. I've told everyone and they don't believe like, me. Like, I think even my wife doesn't believe me. Yeah, and she's like, this is perfect. Tisha Campbell is like, yeah. you've confessed and they still don't believe now, you. This is a yeah, free pass. You're totally clear. So let's go. I know you want me to, you know, kind of a thing. And he's like, no, I'm like, I'm happily married. I've told you no. And then, yeah. And then from the shower room, the wife like bursts in and is like, get your damn hands off my man. <laughs> Yeah. And Tisha Campbell's like, oh, caught in it, right? Yeah. And so we get this whole great confrontation. Uh, Eleanor, Standing ovation, of course. Yes. Audience going crazy. Crazy. Um, she, you know, we get the we get the girl fight, you know, not really swinging or whatever, but like the threat of the girl fight. Eleanor takes off her earrings and puts them in her purse, which is like, you know, classic yeah. well, 90s, she goes, like, hold my earrings. I'm about to get real unladylike. <laughs> she takes off her earrings. And so, yeah, then, you know, Tisha Campbell's like, I'm sorry, you know, won't happen again, my bad, whatever. And she's like, you bet it won't, hussy. And she like, yeah, just runs chases out. her off. She runs out and Rock sits down and she and, and he's just like, oh, I can't believe I can't believe you came here because you didn't trust me. Like, this is where it kind of turns on its head. He's like, you know, you, you came, you rescued me. Wait a minute. Did you come because you didn't trust me? I told you. And she's like... And he goes on this whole monologue and she pulls his lunch out of her purse and is like, you forgot your lunch and I had to go to the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, he has, you know, it's portrayed also pretty gently, but he goes yeah. like, oh, so you believed me she was harassing me, but you didn't trust me to resist her. And then, yeah, immediately gets the comeuppance. And then it ends with them. They're walking out of the locker room, Rock and Eleanor, and she grabs his butt. Yes. So it's like, yeah, you can get all your, your ribald butt grabbing from me. <laughs> so yeah, again, this is what I mean, like a similar scenario, but just a completely different take on it, where, you know, I appreciate what you're saying about the sort of gender reversal, because I wasn't totally thinking about it along those lines. I certainly was when they were talking about the sexual harassment stuff, right. and the idea that you get the audience laughing at the very notion that a man could right. be sexually <laughs> harassed. But still, I was thinking that that this episode just lacked the subtlety and the insight of the other ones because she's portrayed as such a villain. But yeah, to your point, it does have that other dimension to it. And that's the, because look, like I said, I was having that hard time kind of like pulling myself away from the annoying pet peeve of the not making eye contact. So I was just trying to like find anything that I could latch onto that would keep me in the show and not in the like critic of it all. And so, and that once I kind of latched onto that, I was like, oh, oh, this is really cool. The way that they, you know, that they're weaving this story in this kind of gender flipped situation. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to another Fox classic, The Simpsons. Season 5, Episode 9, The Last Temptation of Homer. 
Yeah. So The Simpsons is in season five. It's absolutely on fire at this point. This was in the middle of when all of my friends and I were eating this up with a spoon. Everyone thought this was the funniest, smartest thing on TV. And it was. Uh, This one episode, the, the, you know, Mindy Simmons episode, we get easily half a dozen iconic moments that everybody remembers. The prank with the parking lot lines being too close together, the Joey Jojo thing in the bar, the Bart Simpson transformation into Jerry Lewis, the Colonel Clink dream, like all of the, this is what makes The Simpsons so great, is there's all of these things that have no connection to that, you know, central story, but just work their way in there. And so there's just like a million jokes, you know. So all of those things that you mentioned that were in this episode were like, things that you guys redid and talked about and like would yeah, say just these lines going that emergency exit is painted on you know martin prince going your appearance is comical to me you know all these, <laughs> ah, thank you a funny scientist type bison you know like all of those <laughs> lines you know when colonel clink goes this dream is over it's, it's <laughs> yeah just hysterical and you would say any one of those things you know no joey jojo and like people we would just know what that was. You know? I am having the best time watching you relive this. As not a, a child, you know, as a child who didn't watch The Simpsons, I had none of these references. None of like, there were probably people saying these things in my middle school and I would have been like, huh? Yeah, no, these aren't all on the level of like shagadelic or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, for, for those of us who were into The Simpsons, this was what made it great is that there were so many of these little gags. They were would just they were so generous with all of the little references and jokes and stuff that they gave you and yeah so many of them were just so memorable to me uh so like i said this one begins with the bart simpson prank of repainting the parking lot at the school so that none of the teachers can get out and you just you know it, it's a treasure trove of just those little one-line performances that hank azaria and harry shearer would do of just people People going like, ah, let me out of here, guy, you know. I really enjoyed this episode. You know, I always talk about how I'm hesitant when it comes to this show, but just in general, like I'm not a huge fan of the animated type sitcoms. And I'm always kind of like, all right, you know, I guess I'll watch it because it, you know, you seem to like it or somebody mentioned this one's good, but not really the thing that I know anything about. And this is now the second time that we've watched a Simpsons where I'm like, wow, this is really good. And Homer, his whole journey here, like when when we get to the end and he's we're in the hotel room with him and Mindy and he's all sad and he's like, we're going to have to have sex. And I was just like, oh, homie, like I felt so bad for him. Yeah, well, we talked about it a little bit the other time we covered The Simpsons, which was for our community theater episode. And yeah, what they get from the cartoon of it all is that they can play those same scenarios and those same sort of sitcom-y life lessons and stuff, but it's just at a different tone and a different pitch and Homer's buffoonery can be sort of bigger and funnier and sillier and Dan Castellaneta can play it in those much larger ways, even though at the end of the day, it's still treading over all of those same things, you know, in this case, it's learning that, you 
you know, you've loved your wife all along. But yeah, it is, you know, like you said, we, you know, try to go pretty light on the animated ones. But once in a while, there are examples where a particular trope like this is like, oh, the Simpsons did it in this way that it sort of becomes like the platonic ideal of that trope. Yeah, I mean, it really, it really does a good job. So the setup is... Homer, where he works at the nuclear power plant, Mr. Burns has gotten in trouble for breaking all these labor laws. So he, you know, throws the government a bone and says, well, I'll hire a woman. So he hires a woman and Homer's immediately attracted to her, but he's like, whatever. So then one of his coworkers is like, it's probably nothing. Like, go talk to her. You'll realize you have nothing in common. So he does. And they are basically the same person. They both are like, "Mm, donuts. It's Barney at the bar who says that because he reads the whole prediction thing off of the napkin. He goes like, "Um, your infatuation is based on a purely physical attraction. Talk to the woman and you will see that you probably have very little in common. And when Homer says, that's really insightful. Where did you get all that? Oh, it's written on this napkin. But yeah, he talks to her. We should mention her name is Mindy Simmons. So we're already getting this thing of like, they're sort of the same person. And she gives back to him all of these things that at season five now have become very familiar Homerisms. The can't talk eating you know, yep. that's something that he likes to say, the general love of donuts and all of that. And uh, yeah, like you said, they they are just total like mirror images, except that she's a hot lady. Right. And so and he just can't stop daydreaming about her and every attempt that he makes to kind of disabuse himself of this affection is thwarted. So he's like, you know what, I'm just going to stay away from her and I'm going to tell her I'm going to stay away from her. Oh, no, can't because it. I wrote it on my hand and it all gets I got sweaty palms when she walked by and I'm going to, you know, then they get trapped in an elevator together um, and he's like, think on sexy thoughts, think on sexy thoughts. And of course, it turns into a daydream and then we come out of it and she's standing in the elevator doing the exact same thing, going, think on sexy thoughts, think on sexy thoughts. Yeah, we don't get to see her version of what the unsexy thoughts are. But then, yeah, Homer stops the elevator and goes like, well, I'll just get out here. See you later. This is my stop and slides down the side of the nuclear reactor. Yeah. Uh, vent. <laughs> yeah, he goes, this is my floor. But uh, yeah, and then of course he gets home. First of all, while he's leaving, he goes, vile temptress. I bet she thinks Ziggy's gotten too preachy too. <laughs> Which, talk <laughs> about a time capsule joke. Like Ziggy was this comic strip. I just looked it up to confirm it's I, I, there's no way to describe it. It's just like a big smiley face that was like this comic strip that was just the most innocuous. Like, well, Zig, yeah, Ziggy was um like you had uh, we had Ziggy coffee mugs. Yeah, Ziggy was like um it was one of the comic strips that was just in the circle, so it would just be like right, a like one the family pain. circus. Yeah, but uh, family circus sometimes had multiple panes, but they would always have a circle. But yeah, Ziggy was one that was like in a circle as well, and it was um uh, for some reason I feel like didn't that one have something to do with like a case of the Mondays, didn't we get that? Wasn't it sort of a little bit like Dilbert too? Yeah, or or Kathy. I'm looking at one right now that says, I just ate six Happy Meals and I'm still depressed. Yeah. So like that kind of thing. So yes, it's just a funny line for Homer to say, oh, I bet she also thinks Ziggy's gotten too preachy lately. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he gets home and then we get the other half of this equation where not only do you have this, you know, sexy new coworker, your wife is sort of turning into a zombie before your eyes. Yeah, like, well, so they had this great... Great scene at the very beginning, which kicks off the B-plot of Bart turning into a nerd. 
And it's that they have new insurance. So they have an HMO now. And so this, of course, very 90s, like HMO was just kind of becoming a thing. Hillary Clinton was trying (laughs) to socialize our medicine. And so we had the the HMO was like everything under one roof. So you could get your glasses, your regular doctoring, your podiatry, your, you know, dry scalp, all the things that Bart was dealing with. You could all in one place and so they went from bouncing from doctor's appointment to doctor's appointment to doctor's appointment throughout the day at this yeah. one big each like, one referring Walmart you to the building right yeah. each Going one referring like, oh, you to the, the next the throat sounds a little scratchy let me give you something for that and, oh you should see the the dermatologist down the down the corridor there for your dry scalp and so so yeah so after spending the day in this like Walmart warehouse of medical procedures they come home and Marge has a cold because she's been exposed and bart is now dressed up like you know buster poindexter he's jerry lewis he's walking around going "Ah, hi everybody yeah he's got the glasses and the elevator shoes and everything yes it's very funny and that leads to a whole b plot where he's inducted into this secret nerd society that lives like in between the walls it's kind of like the the, what what is it called in Harry Potter? The room that they train in in the Order of the Phoenix that like can't be accessed by the rest. Of oh the yeah, the the room of requirement or something. Well, like the that. room of requirement is like it only appears when you require it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah I think that's what it is. But yeah, so so it's it's that kind of thing. But yes, yeah, so as far as Homer and Marge, she's all sick and you know weird looking, and she goes, "Look, I had a T-shirt made up of me in the mall. I got fifty cents off because it's smudged." <laughs> It's like this picture of her all like distorted and everything. So yeah, it's just meant to set up this contrast between yes. she's not at her best. And and they can't, you know, he can't like reaffirm his love for her by having sexy times with her. He's like, let's spend some good time together. And she's like, oh, homie, I love that. And then shows him this shirt that's all her face like distorted. Yeah. And he's like, ugh. Yeah. Oh. And then we also have one of the funny parts where uh, he's watching TV and as he's flipping through the channels, everything yes. he goes like, it's like, John F. Kennedy and like it lists several uh, like famous philanderers and it goes did cheating on their spouses make them great yeah and then it cuts cheat your way to the top yeah. at 11 <laughs> yeah hail to the cheat is, that's is right the hail name to of the, the thing. cheat and then he flips to like the nature channel and it's like this species of fly has over 50,000 sex partners and never feels a moment of guilt yeah <laughs> he's like everything is telling me to, to cheat even the animals yeah and then when he falls asleep and has a dream it's Colonel clink because it's a funny thing where it's from hogan's heroes yeah it goes first it's isaac newton it goes like oh i'm just your conscience but i'm going to take this form of of a presence that you would find familiar yeah someone you would trust yeah and so of course he doesn't really know isaac newton so it becomes colonel clink from hogan's heroes which i don't really trust this is a perfect example of a simpsons thing where i don't really get the reference i didn't watch hogan's heroes went off the air in 1971 so no surprise but it's still hilarious. This yeah. Colonel Clink character is really funny. And every time he takes him, it's it's kind of like a Christmas carol, yeah. that Charles Dickens thing, where he takes him to the altar 
alternate world where, oh, if you and Marge hadn't gotten married, this is what would have happened. But everything he shows him is a good scenario. Right. Marge is president. Yeah. He and Mindy are together and very rich. Yeah. Well, so the actor who played the Colonel Clink in the original Hogan's Heroes does the voice in this. Okay. And it was his, one of his last, I think it was his last TV appearance because yeah. he was getting up there. Yeah. And Homer keeps going like, do you know that Hogan had a radio hidden in the coffee pot? And he goes, he did. And then, yeah, when the, 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 the fantasies don't prove the point he's trying to make, it's just feeding this idea that Homer should get together with Mindy. And so, yeah, Colonel Clink goes, this fantasy is over. Yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> yeah. And then Homer wakes up. And so it's like, yeah, nothing. He's looking for something. To stop it. And this is where it sort of becomes, uh, like you're saying, you know, this thing that's going to take him through to the end where it's like, this just seems inevitable. Like this is going to happen. Yeah. And and so they get chosen to go to this convention in Capital City, yes. the two of them. The Windy Apple. That's right. So they go to Capital City for the convention. And then while at the convention, they are chosen as the king and queen of the convention. Yes. So they're given, they're gifted a fancy dinner at at this uh, Chinese restaurant. Yes, this is a, a power convention. This is all different sources of energy. Right. And I just have to point out again, this is another thing the Simpsons just totally excelled at. Anytime there was an opportunity to have a lot of little sort of text-based sight gags, you know, yes. little posters and signs and stuff. And so, yeah, you get all of the different energy sources. You get fossil fuel sort of well, being so like... Well, so solar energy was like, it's the future, it's that. And it was just one guy in the booth. And some Somebody comes up to him and is like, so does this really work? And the guy's like, yeah. And he was like, okay, great. Pulls the curtain, beats him up. And then it has the fossil fuels on top of it. And that guy's gone. And it's like fossil fuels, use us and nobody gets hurt. Yeah. And the one that they just pan past quickly, which I loved was, what about wind? <laughs> it's just a funny little quick one. Uh, so yeah, so Mindy and Homer are sent to Madam Chow's. And I really related to this when Mindy goes, it was sure nice of them to make us cheeseburgers, right? Because neither of them are worldly enough to eat anything at a Chinese restaurant. Which I found out, uh, fair listeners, just <laughs> yesterday, that Jay wouldn't eat chicken until he was 15 years old, which so, I was shocked at. I said, what did you eat? He said, cheeseburgers. <laughs> yeah, they were nice enough to make me cheeseburgers. So yeah, they get back to the hotel, and this is the scene you're talking about where Homer is just paralyzed by his indecision. And again, just like with the community theater episode, I would say this is something that you just couldn't do in live action. Like you could do something with this overall story arc, but this particular scene would just be odd if it were played this way in live action. But as it is an animated form, you just sort of buy into it that Homer is reduced to this sobbing puddle. Yeah, He's well, his his um, fortune cookie says, you know, you're going to find find a new love that's not your wife or something like that. And he's just, he's resigned. And so they're sitting on the bed in the hotel room because they found out earlier in the episode that they have these adjoining rooms with the door that, you know, yeah. they can just open and don't have to go out in the hallway at all between them. 
And so he's just, he's sitting on the bed just crying. And, um, and Mindy's like, what's wrong? And, and he's like, well, we're going to have sex now. And I love my wife. I love Marge, you know, and he's so sad. I mean, he just really feels like the whole universe is telling him this is what he, he's, he's going to do. And he doesn't have another choice. And, uh, and it's really, it's like heart wrenching in a way because like, that's kind of the way, you know, fidelity is, yeah. you know, the world absolutely is tempting you all the time. And you just have to be like, I'm not interested in that. I'm looking over here and doing this other thing instead. And so it was so, it was really touching. Yeah. And then he, what was it? What happens? He's like eating a chili dog and he, his shirt bursts open and he's wearing the undershirt of Marge <laughs> that she got that where her face is all stretched out. Yeah. So he's like trying to hold on to her in any way he can in these situations and Mindy's like it's okay you know you know how I feel about you but it's your decision you can make the decision and then they kiss and then it like turns and we see this woman in a red dress who very much like Mindy was just having on a red dress so it was like oh we're gonna like this is it Homer's gonna cheat and then we hear Marge's voice so you know they had that one kiss and he sent Mindy on her way and he calls Marge and Marge has come and now they get to have a romantic weekend together because her cold is gone yeah uh very impressive when they would do these in the 90s a 3d camera move just as an animator i just have to say that they would do those in this in this kind of animation is always uh impressive and it does that where the camera like you said sort of spins around to sort of fake you out and show you ah it's actually marge that he's got together with in the hotel and yeah so that was his solution you know invite marge over and yeah just like you're saying i think what this one really nails is despite all of the silliness and all of the over over the top characterizations the cognitive dissonance you know that homer's brain is just short-circuiting because you know he wants something but doesn't want it and it's something that everybody has to experience it's at the heart of all addictions and yeah just all struggle really is that thing of like different parts of our brain want different things and sometimes it's really hard to reconcile that and yeah i mean this is what is so great about the simpsons is that it can take you on this crazy journey to the hmo and to the nuclear power (laughs) fair and show you a million different things and reference politics and movies and all that and you know homer can be so ridiculous and yet you know just as well as any other sitcom you get that little sort of nugget of emotional truth at the end. Yeah, it really was lovely to um, like how funny and strange is it that I think the the character that is best able in all four of our episodes to kind of play that struggle within the two sides like when you want something but you don't want to want that thing yeah how you can handle it we don't see it actually handled we just see that the decision was made right we mm-hmm. see the like end of that and then uh and then marge there but yeah it's it was it it was really well done yeah yeah all right let's move into the 21st century for till death season one episode 14 the colleague Yeah, this was one I wasn't super familiar with. I mostly knew this from ads in bus stops and stuff. Like, this was one where we were adults when this came out. There were ads on the subway and everything. And I 
kind of dismissed it as like essentially an unofficial everybody loves Raymond spinoff, you know, understanding it wasn't literally the same character, but just kind of being like, oh, well, here's a sitcom that I wasn't that interested in the first place. And now one of the supporting actors for that guy for that show has been promoted to his own family sitcom. So I was just kind of a hard pass on this whole thing and i'll say watching it now this this was definitely a pleasant surprise for me this had a different sort of sensibility than i was expecting and i kind of liked it yeah i i did watch this show um i uh, probably only the first couple of seasons though i don't remember it it went on for four seasons it was super low rated for most of that time 2006 to 2010 is when it was on the air. Um, so yeah, it was one of these weird ones where it was basically canceled in the, like, well, there was a writer's strike that put it on hiatus in like 08. And then it was basically canceled in season three where they had filmed a bunch of episodes that they didn't air. And uh, the ratings were so bad that they, you know, they just didn't finish season three. And then it was surprise renewed for season four, because of some like sweetheart licensing deal that like whatever studio had made with Fox to try to get it up to the 100 episodes that it needed to go and do syndication. And so they ended up with this sweetheart deal. So they it worked out and they aired uh, an extra long season four that included the episodes that they didn't air from season three. So season four was like 37 episodes or whatever. But yeah, and and what I remember of this show is that you have the guy, Brad Garrett, from Ray Romano, and Jolie Fisher, who's from Ellen. They're the main couple. They've been married like 24 years or something like that. And then newlyweds move in next door. And the the newlyweds, the the uh, husband is played by Shitbreak from American Pie, yeah. Eddie K. Thomas. And so, um, and the girl, I don't really know. So that's like the setup. It's the like couple that's been around the block as a couple. And the couple that's like brand new, just kind of cutting their teeth as newlyweds. And the the husbands both work at the school. So the Brad Garrett is a history teacher. And Eddie K. Thomas is also a teacher. But I think he later becomes like the assistant principal. And that is the setup of the show. Well, um, I didn't know this. But both the other couple, the honey, like the uh, newlywed couple, they leave at the end of season two. They didn't come back. Huh. Yeah, this definitely has the feeling of that rules of engagement thing where it's going to be two couples, right? Right. A study of two couples at two slightly different points in life, and that's going to be the basis of our show. It doesn't surprise me that this wasn't highly rated or, or that it didn't do super well, not because it's bad, but just this is that time where these shows are having their lunches eaten by the office and their single camera competitors 30 rock they're just yeah these shows are starting to be like for your grandma yeah they're not for like the cool people don't watch these but brad garrett and jolie fisher are really funny yeah i have to say i felt a little gaslit about this jolie fisher lady i'm asking what is she from and you're like jolie fisher she was in 
everything. Come she on, she was, was everywhere. I'm looking at it now. When you look her up, the first thing that she's known for is this show. The well, second thing is the 1999 film adaptation of Inspector Gadget. Well, I don't know about that. She was the one. She was like the best friend yes, in Ellen. She's in Ellen, uh, but this is not exactly a ubiquitous actress. I don't. She seemed like it to me, and she's Carrie Fisher's half sister. So yes. I don't know. I Daughter just, of uh, Eddie I guess, Fisher. Okay, not of Deborah Reynolds. That's Carrie not of Fisher's Debbie mom. Reynolds. That's right. Yeah. So she's the wife. Brad Garrett is the dad, and yeah, they work or he works at a school, like you said. So this begins at some sort of like fundraising dinner or something. It's yes, like they're it's at a the spaghetti dinner at night. for the school. Yeah, it's like a spaghetti dinner, and Brad Garrett's going back for like sixths or whatever, and um, and Jolie Fisher's teasing him. And then the husbands are sitting there and their new colleague is like walking down the, you know, the aisle of the cafeteria looking for a place to sit. And Brad Garrett tells Eddie K. Thomas, like, hey, word to the wise, don't try to make good friends with the new woman that you're working with. That's not a good look. Your wife isn't going to like that. Yeah. Now, I thought this was an interesting little nugget that I wanted to ponder for a second. He says, once you're married, the only female friends you can have are the ones that are grandfathered in. Which I think isn't 100% true, but listening to that, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, because I just think of all of my friends that I'm so close with. And it's like, yeah, they're all from when I was a kid or maybe, you know, like a younger person. And it's like, yeah, you're grandfathered in. Nobody can get jealous of you. Well, you absolutely can get jealous, but you're less likely to win the battle on that yeah. one. You kind of have to be like, your friends are me. So that's not going to work out. But it is very difficult to bring in the new friend of the opposite opposite sex whether single or married if that you know i'm talking about the person the, the new friend right uh it doesn't matter it, it is a challenge and it would be a challenge for everybody <laughs> yeah definitely and if there is a situation like this where one of the people is a young single person then it can spell trouble exactly. and so we get like we often do the last most recent sitcom episode is a little bit of a subversion or a twist on the trope. So in this one, Brad Garrett is going in fully aware of this trope. You know, the the spouse that is to be tempted is preemptively going like, no, no, I, I know how this goes. I'm not going to talk to you at all. Yeah. Stonewalled. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. And meanwhile, the spouse is the one, you know, sort of mocking the whole idea, scoffing at the notion of like, hey, come on, you, you know, what do you think that just because you get to know your colleague, that means you're having an affair? Don't be silly. Well, and she has this whole speech that she gives when they get back to the house after she has gotten the this woman's number yeah. for Brad Garrett's character. And she's just like, we're dead inside. We don't care about anything. We are not sexual anymore. We don't well, care about this stuff. And she like goes on. And that's another nugget that I wanted to dig into. And we'll see this play out in the episode. But yeah, that idea of th this isn't the angle on it that they're taking yet. But this is what I choose to sort of extract from it. That a little bit of jealousy is good, you know, because if you don't have anything, you can say, oh, we have this absolute trust in each other. Or you could look at it from a more jaded point of view and just go like, well, no, we just don't feel any emotions and we don't care about anything. So well, that's and that's basically what she's saying. She's like, we're dead inside. We now are at the point in our relationship where it's it would be more.
more work for us to not be with one another than it would be to just be with one another. And neither one of us is ready or able to do that again. So we're stuck, basically, is like her her thesis here. And so he's like, well, all right. I mean, that's cool. So he you know, gets in touch with this woman who wants to see his syllabus because she also teaches history. And so she comes over and they're sitting at the table and, you know, Jolie Fisher makes them like some pot stickers or whatever. And she's overhearing this conversation where they realize they're like the same person. This they is both, a Mindy Simmons situation. Exactly. They both are like finishing each other's sentences about this obscure yeah. historical author. A this historical professor. take on history. Yes. This like historian um, that they both love his book and he's coming to speak at the bookshop on the weekend. Yeah. And oh, Brad Garrett is is uh, the monitor moderator of the Q&A. And she's like, oh my God, you're my hero. Yeah. This is where the tide turns. Because prior to this, Joy, the wife, is teasing him. She's going, oh, it's time for your date, honey. Now, this was another thing I wanted to pause on because this plot contrivance is a little strange to me. Like, I think that Joy is absolutely right to say... Oh, it's it's you don't need to consider it infidelity just because you're you're working with this right. Woman. Like I'm not going to get jealous right. of you working with this woman. But I look, I'm not a teacher. I don't. This thing of they need to get together after hours, like immediately. Like I urgently need to come to your house at night to go over the syllabus. Like I I understand that notoriously teachers aren't given enough time in their workday <laughs> to do all their plans and stuff. But this couldn't be like a Let's stay after for a few minutes after school like this, this, you know, having known a lot of teachers, I haven't heard of a lot of late night syllabus sharing, <laughs> you know, sessions. No, I kind of got the impression that that was only happening because he had blown her off at school and now the class was about to start and she's new and she was basically kind of like writing her own syllabus and she hadn't had this opportunity and he'd been blowing her off and wouldn't work with her and now she's like about to start the class and she's like i'd love to look at your syllabus so we can compare and so it was like last minute kind of a thing yeah but then it turns into let's go see this guy talk right that's where everything changes because joy starts out as teasing him and laughing at him he tucks in his shirt which i thought was a funny sort of observational thing because it's like yeah if you were in this situation you might spiff yourself up a little bit just to be you know sort of professional or whatever but yeah i mean like normally at home i don't know about brad garrett's character but like you wear sweatpants where Whereas if we had someone coming over, no matter what, you would get all dressed up right. nice. And I would 100% be like, oh, get spiffy for that, your date. I exactly. would make the same joke. Yeah, this is how it would play out. The person would, would dress up a little bit and then the spouse would make fun of them. So, yeah, it all feels very real. And then when they realize that they both love a historical take on history by... Um, <laughs> William uh, Duffy or something like yes, that. Yes, yes, yeah. by Professor William Duffy. And they start like totally nerding out about it. They're going like, oh, the, the chapter about the Harry Sinclair jury tampering? Oh, my God. And so, yeah, this is where Joy, it's like it's not so funny anymore. And it's like, okay, now I really am kind of jealous. They make plans to go to this book reading. And uh, yeah, she 
starts doing the thing of like, okay, I'm going to take an interest, you know, right. Joy is I'm like, gonna I'm going to try to read this book. So, yeah. so I can like be a part of these conversations. Yes. Which I feel like is definitely a sort of subtrope of this kind of scenario is like, oh, you don't think that I'm into blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't think I know about sports or whatever it is, you know? So in this case, yeah, it's trying to read this history book. That's like the size of a phone book. I thought uh, that was a really sweet way to go about it as well. Like, it's really nice to not have a bunch of examples of like toxic couples in this yes. lineup. Uh-huh. Um, you know, her solution isn't to like get mad. It's to say, oh, you know, he's really connected with this other woman uh, on this intellectual level about this thing. Maybe I as his wife could like make a little effort to be interested in the things he's interested in. Let me try to read the book. And of course she fails because she can't get past the second page. She keeps falling asleep. Yeah. At first she tries reading it. Then she makes a house of cards on it. Yeah. And she just falls asleep on it. <laughs> and so, but I was like, oh, that's a really sweet kind of like positive way to look at it. Like, oh, I, I, you know, I want to try to connect with my husband too. So. Yeah. So the next scene is at the bookstore and this, <laughs> parts of this felt very true and parts of it felt strange because if you've ever been to one of these author appearances at a bookstore, they are often very sparsely attended. So it definitely gets that right, that there's five or six people in these little folding chairs, you know, these things they used to always have at Borders Books and stuff, these little guest appearances. And Eddie, uh, Brad Garrett's character, introduces the author. What felt strange to me was the guy takes the little podium and just immediately answers a question by Lucy, the young woman, which just, it made it feel like this is a press conference that happened after like a bomb was dropped or something where it's just like, no time for nonsense. Yes. Washington Post. I'll take it from you. You Wouldn't there be a little questions and then they do the reading. Yeah. Which is strange. You would think it would be a little bit of like, oh, let's have this guy talk a little bit, maybe read. But yeah, Lucy, now we haven't really talked about her. I think she is really good casting because, you know, she's very attractive woman obviously they have their choice of young actresses yeah but she's more like mousy like a history teacher would be rather than bombshell like tisha campbell exactly so it's played in this way of like yes of course you would recognize that this is somebody that there'd be the potential for some sort of something going on but uh yeah it's not the thing of like heads turn when she walks into a room like she just she just seems believable like she seems like a young teacher that you know a 40 year old guy would be like oh yeah look there's kind of a young pretty lady working here now you know? <laughs> yeah and so the q a plays out with lucy asking a very intelligent question you know about like trade routes and how the you know <laughs> was it just the trade routes that influenced the spread of culture or was it the migrational shifts and you know the guy climate and yeah all. the guy answers her in this way that's you know both learned but also kind of funny and then we see joy you know, again, right out of the playbook for this kind of trope. She's shoving her way into the back row of this of this Q&A, and she starts asking a question about page one. She's like, on page one of your book yeah, I, that I loved, by the way. Yeah, and she's you asking said. <laughs> about this, like, very basic sort of, like, contrast that he set up, where it's something like, oh, you said that, you know, history is a mystery, and yet you also say that it's clear. 
well, how can you possibly reconcile those two? You yeah. know, it's something and like that. And he's like, well, on page two of yeah. my book, I explain that that's the thesis I'm now going to examine for the next 40 chapters. And she's like, which you did wonderfully. <laughs> yes. And then she goes, all right, I guess it's time to break to break out the big guns. And then she just unbuttons her shirt and just kind of like sticks her boobs out. Basically. Well, right. So there is, this is the thing that I remember about this show and I don't know if you noticed it like earlier in the episode, but every single episode has something to do with Joy just having like great tits. That is what this show mentions all the time. So she always wears kind of really low cut um, shirts with push-up bra and she's not a tiny petite woman she's like a normal size woman who has big boobs and so when they're very on display but not in like a dolly parton way more like in a i wear relaxed clothes but i have yeah. this like great push-up bra on. i have to admit when we were first watching this i wasn't sure if it was the same actress that played the wife of ross's ex-wife on Friends who also shows up in Breaking Bad. I was like, you know, it looks it's just not, like they her. They have similarly curly hair. I was, I was like, it looks just like her, but this lady's got much bigger boobs. <laughs> and so that was kind of like the big difference to me. That's so funny. Well, so that is like a big part of the show is that Joy has great knockers. And um, she mentions it and there's, you know, her costumes always play to it, always. So when she showed up at the book reading, she didn't have her boobs on display. And then she's like, all right, well, time to take out the big guns. And she takes off her, you know, flannel or whatever she has on. And she's got a wife beater on. So she's not showing a lot of cleavage, but she's just showing how big they are. Yeah, yeah. She's just generally sort of like taking the low road at right. this point <laughs> and just sort of trying to trying to command the attention in any possible way. And she's kind of making a fool of herself. And I just noticed that this is another one of these shows where the wife gets to be silly. You know, this yeah. is like Martin, like Dick Van Dyke. You know, Brad Garrett gets to take his turn being the guy kind of putting his face in his hands and just kind of being sheepish and embarrassed while his wife makes a spectacle of herself. Yes. And so, you know, and, and, well, so they have this conversation in the back of the room while, and I think this is the reason the Q and a was first and the reading was second yeah. was so she could have that embarrassing thing. And then they could still be in the book space while the guy was doing the reading, having this discussion. So they're in the back of the little like bookstore and she is, you know, in her wife beater. And she's like, you know, we just never connected about intellectual stuff. We connected about these. And yeah. he's like, I like connecting about those. <laughs> yeah. What she says is, you know, she's jealous about the way that your eyes light up when you talk to her, you know, which is something that, yeah, I think, you know, like anybody can relate to that idea that even if it's not another person, you see your partner get excited, you know, or passionate about something that you're not a part of. Yeah. And yeah. And, uh, you know, she says, yeah, that we, we don't have that intellectual connection. We have a sexual connection. And it's interesting because it's like, you know, they have to sort of meet halfway where, you know, part of what he's saying is like, no, it's not just that we have all these other things in common, too. But I think also what she needs to accept is, yeah, your relationship is not going to be everything to either of you, you right. know, and that you are going to have other people and other things that you're passionate about also. And you need to sort of have the confidence 
to be able to see the other person get passionate about a cheeseburger or whatever <laughs> and not think that it takes away from how they feel about you. Yeah. So another great thing about this show, not this episode overall, is this was my first introduction to Kristen Ritter. She played their grown daughter who's away at college. And so she was kind of a recurring character in season one. And then like basically every season she was played by a different actress. Um, you know that Kate McCoy? Gucci actress. She played their daughter in the last season. So like every season, it was a different actress. Oh, so Kate McCucci and Kristen Ritter are the same character? Same character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And they, you know, they make reference to it over time. But yeah, so that was just another kind of fun little memory when I was thinking about, you know, what do I remember about this show? I remembered the two main characters were really funny. I like their, you know, Brad Garrett and Jolie Fisher's kind of chemistry and their sort of banter. I remember that I liked Kristen Ritter and I thought she was really funny when she would come in and have her moments. But overall, like going back to the trope and, and this episode, I think this one, it it ends with a whimper. And maybe if we had watched it before we watched The Simpsons, it would have resonated better. But because they just didn't go anywhere with it and it was just like, yeah, we like each other. Okay. Well, I was kind of like, ah, <laughs> I guess so. But I liked that, you know, it ends with her saying, well, I guess we're not dead inside. And so to me, that was enough of a a journey, I guess, you know, that it started with her going like, we can't possibly be jealous because A, we're emotionally dead. B, we're too old for anybody to be attracted to us. Like there's just, eh, there's just nothing going on anymore. And so the fact that this little, you know, episode, if you will, of their lives got her stirred up enough to start reading this book and then go to this book club thing and make this ruckus and everything. And that she went on, yeah, this silly little sitcom journey and kind of realized like, okay, I guess there is a little bit of, you know, uncertainty or self-consciousness or, or jealousy, as it were, present here or the potential for that 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 means that there's still some some life here you know i i liked that i liked that as a notion well it was just that they didn't there was no so what there was no like so what do we do with that oh maybe we should go take a class to you know there was no there wasn't a so what after that realization which is probably more true to life you know you don't always have a so what in in life but it just it just felt like it ended rather than like having an ending did it end with them sort of implying that they're going to go off and bang was of course it one of, it, those? of course it did but so i think that was enough. every episode of this yeah but that's to me that's enough to be like ah you know we got a little bit of spark back like i think that's all it really needs to yeah to the do. only episode of our four that didn't end like with a hey let's go bang was the Seavers growing pains they didn't end like that well they hugged they were at the newspaper studio. i know but they didn't like you know yeah, chase them up the stairs pretty, or uh, whatever i think there was something going <laughs> there was on something that to that hug, hug. Yeah, yeah, I could see there was something in his pocket. I don't know. All right, so looking back over these, again, really strong lineup. I love how they all kind of overlap in the basic story beats and yet really have these different 
attitudes. Yeah, it was really nice. Like, I was worried that this was just going to be one after another after another of, like, the young, sexy woman and the, you know, man and, oh, blah, you know, I'm so hot, kind of a, like, I was just worried it was going to be dry and stayed in that way. And it wasn't. Every one of these kind of took it in a different direction, upended what I would have thought was the trope, but then in doing so made me realize that the trope is much more about human relationships and interactions than it is being tempted by a sexy coworker. Yeah. Yeah. I think rock was kind of a disappointment for me again, being so sort of nostalgic and curious about it going like, Oh yeah, I used to love that show. I haven't seen it in, you know, 30 years. What is that like? And kind of realizing like, uh, it's, it's kind of just another one of these Fox, See, you know, oh, that's like, fun. well, and I think probably cause I came to, to it with a different, you know, expectation. I had never seen rock. And so, you know, I only knew about rock because you had told me about it years ago. Yeah. And so I, this is my first time seeing it. I was surprised and really delighted in the way that like when I picked up on what I thought they were doing, which was trying to do the subversion and the gender swap. And I was like, Oh, I really like that. That's really smart. Way to go. 1992. Yeah. No, I think it is both things at once to me. I think it is a clever play on the gender politics of the time to have it, you know, in all the ways that we said. And yet at the same time, I think that that over-the-top characterization of Tisha Campbell's character just made it, like, to me, the least insightful of all of them. You know, that it, it was, again, again, an interesting subversion of the gender thing, but also just kind of seemed like a comic book villain that they had to defeat, whereas the other ones seemed like a little bit of a, you know, just more of a thoughtful, like, exploration of that. Well, the biggest surprise, I think, of all for me is always The Simpsons, because, you know, it's not something that I know well. It just as I know it as the cultural institution, not for any of the reasons that it is a cultural institution, you know. And so that's always a joy. And I really felt like I had a lot of feelings for Homer throughout that journey and was that. That was I I was like it's crazy that this cartoon can be so touching. Yeah. No, and Growing Pains, of course, gives you exactly what we're looking for in terms of a mid-80s sitcom, you know, keep keep it coming. And yeah, for me, Till Death was the surprise, you know, for one that I wasn't familiar with at all. And to discover like, oh, okay, you know, I'm learning that I don't even hate Everybody Loves Raymond as much as I thought I did. And if this show is going to get rid of the grandparents that can't stand each other and swap them out with a young couple that actually has a nice vibe... And, you know, we don't have like annoying little kids that we have to figure out what to do with. Like, this seems like an improvement on Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a totally different thing. Yeah. But so, so yeah, I would look forward to trying to, you know, put that on the roster in the future. So, yeah, really strong, uh, strong lineup overall. All right. So much for being tempted by a sexy coworker. What are we talking about next week? Bust out your false eyelashes and your glitter, Jay. It's time for a beauty pageant. We are watching Designing Women Season 1, Episode 2, The Beauty Contest, A Different World Season 1, Episode 17, Mr. Hillman, Malcolm in the Middle Season 6, Episode 22, Mrs. Tri-County, and Parks and Recreation Season 2, Episode 3, Beauty Pageant. Yep. We're talking all about the beauty pageants next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. 
Thank you for listening to the Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Music